0: Welcome to episode 165 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I get into our first Thessalonians series. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm really pumped about it. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. I learned a lot of cool things and I really pray you will too. If it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on our Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, please consider going and buying a copy of my new book, The Final Abominable Temple. You can purchase your copy, uh, a paperback copy, hardback copy, audio book, or digital copy on Amazon. And if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review. That's really important for other people to see what the book is about. Um, That would be really awesome for me Um, uh, and for other people who are considering purchasing the book. Uh, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency and uh, you can find all of our content on uh, by going to omegafrequency.com, uh, going to our YouTube channels, Omega frequency and Omega frequency live, our Rumble channels, and uh, also checking out our podcast Omega frequency. You can find our content there as well. There's so much great content from BDK and uh, all the Omega frequency family um, go through those Omega Fre- the Omega frequency catalog. check it out. there's so much that will bless you there. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 165. All right. First official episode talking about First Thessalonians. That's right. Yeah. How are you doing, Steph?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: All right. You've been doing well in uh, school?
1: I'm, I mean, We're doing great. Yeah. Yeah? you are good. Fantastic. Yeah. How about you? Yeah.
0: It's a pretty smooth year.
1: Good. Yeah. Praise God.
0: Anything people could be praying for you about?
1: Um, Pray for me as I'm working on a certification. That's an extra kind of thing. It's a little time consuming, so you could pray for that. Nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But- All right, so today we're gonna be getting into 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verses one through five. Kind of do a little bit of a quick recap for folks uh, about last week, we built a foundation from Acts chapter 17. Y'all remember Paul and Silas and Timothy. They came over from Philippi after Paul and Silas got a pretty severe beating for casting a demon out of a slave girl, and um, we talked about how Philippi was a Roman colony, and Thessalonica was not a Roman colony, but it was the capital city of Macedonia, so there were a lot of uh, patriots there in Thessalonica, and uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy go into the synagogue there at Thessalonica, Thessalonica and for three Sabbaths, they uh, reason with the people of the synagogue, proving from the scriptures that the Messiah had to both suffer and rise from the dead. And at, at the end of that time, we are told that uh, some of the Jews there were persuaded along with a large number of Gentiles, particularly um, many of the uh, uh, prominent Greek women um, and um, then a lot of the Jews got jealous right they got jealous and um, they rounded up some unsavory fellows from the marketplace that started um, some false uh, you know some some fake news about Paul and Silas and Timothy and so then they, say, and uh, Jason has taken them into his house. So they go into Jason's house. They try to find Paul and Silas and Timothy. They don't. So they drag Jason and some of the other guys uh, um, up in front of one of the city uh, magistrates or whatever. And after play, paying a fine, basically, they let the people go. Then Paul and Silas hustle out of there and go to Berea. And um The people in Berea in the synagogue are much more welcoming, not just to Paul and Silas, but to the message as well. And a large number of the Jews in the synagogue of Berea uh, received the message. So that's kind of a two-minute summary of what we talked about last time. So with that said, um, let's read, if you don't mind, Steph, um, verses 1 through 5. Then we'll do a little bit of the who when, why, and then get into the verses. What translation are you reading from, by the way?
1: Uh, N-E-S-B.
0: All right, very good.
1: All right. So, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we've proved to be among you for your sake.
0: All right. So the people that are writing it, it's Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, right? This Sylvanus person we talked about is Silas. Mm-hmm. Went in a little bit, not a deep dive, but we talked a lot about him. Yeah. Uh, when are they writing it? Sometime between AD 49 to 52? Why are they writing it? Well, we talked about how Paul was viewed as a traitor to Caesar and the state by the Romans. So he does a little bit of uh, uh, clarifying work on that, how they are proving to be like quality people. As you just kind of read, you know what kind of people we prove to be among mm-hmm. you. These are not rabble rousers as we talked <laughs> about. Such a weird word. Such a grandpa word, right? Yeah, yeah they are not like that though. They're not mm-hmm. trying to be terrible citizens They do claim there is a different king. That's true. But they're not trying to like uh, just turn, literally like uh, start a rebellion or a revolution in in the worldly sense of the terms. Right. Yeah. Um, But they're also viewed by the Jews as defectors or apostates from Judaism. They're viewed as false prophets. And so uh, there's a bit of clarification going on there in this letter as well. And um, also, just like Paul and Silas and Jason and some of the others encountered some persecution, the Thessalonians have been encountering some persecution as well. Mm -hmm. And we know that from uh, different uh, passages in the letter where Paul uh, reminds them how he told them when he was with them, that they were going to be persecuted, both him and they. Mm-hmm. There's a call to toward holiness and a call to sexual purity. He clears up some confusion over the state of their deceased relatives, particularly as it pertains to the return of Jesus. So there's a question that's going to come up in chapter 4. Now we're going to see what about the, our dead relatives when Jesus comes back? What's going to happen to them? Mm-hmm. And then there's some other instructions for maintaining church health. So, with that said, let's get into the particulars. Unless you had something you want to,
1: I I did notice like it. He doesn't start with Paul, an apostle. Um, is that because like the Thessalonians didn't have any question of his uh, like apostleship or whatever, or is that? I mean, it seems like a lot of times he establishes that credential, but he doesn't
0: here. He doesn't in the intro, but he basically does throughout the letter. Okay. So uh, as to why that is, that's a really good question, and I'm not totally sure why he doesn't use that credential here in the intro. Okay. But he he does establish it. He calls himself and Silas and Timothy apostles later on in the letter. Mm -hmm. So he does say it.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, just not in the intro.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So Paul uses right off the bat a term, ecclesia, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, this is interesting Because this term church, ekklesia, in the Greek, Old Testament, so that's the Septuagint, this is used about the congregation, the assembly of Israel. So let me read you a brief quote from G.K. Beale's commentary on uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Maybe get your reaction to it, okay? All right, so Beal says, quote, Paul's reference to the church, ecclesia, is too often viewed through modern lenses, a local group of Christians who meet on Sunday to worship God and to learn from his word. The word church, however, must also be understood against the background of the Greek Old Testament, where the word repeatedly refers to the gathered congregation of Israel. In this light, the Thessalonians church was part of the true Israelite congregation of God's people who had been established by Messiah Jesus's latter-day redemptive work. All right, Steph, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think it's interesting because, well, for one, like I've never heard like a like a Jewish person talking about church, using that terminology. So it's, to me, it it has a very, like, Christian connotation. And yeah, it does have that modern-day idea of, like, this is where we get together. This is the group that I'm a part of. But he is using it, obviously, in a much more inclusive, unified sense, not a local body at all, um, but so much as this is... These are the true Israelites. These are the true ones who have found the Messiah that they were searching for, and they're unified in this.
0: Yeah, and the foundation of that is Jews, like literally Mm -hmm. biological ethnic Jews.
1: Right.
0: That's the foundation, but clearly the majority in Thessalonica were not ethnic Jews, but they're believing in the Jewish Messiah. And this is a fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. So it's interesting when he says this is the congregation in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just at Thessalonica, but they are in God the Father and they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's it's interesting now, Paul is applying this term Lord, just like all the other New Testament writers to Jesus. This term Lord in the Old Testament, generally speaking, the way the Septuagint would apply it, uh, would not be the master thing, but the Yahweh title. That's the way Paul is attributing it to Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Now, when you bring that into many Old Testament prophecies, such as Zechariah 2, it's really interesting. Because in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, you have this, um, this prophecy about what's going to happen when the temple is rebuilt. What is the Lord going to do when the temple, Zerubbabel's second temple, is rebuilt? And so the Lord says... Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. So Zion is being God's holy mountain, right? And this is the daughter. These are the children, basically, of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst. God is going to dwell in the midst Mm -hmm. of his people. But it gets better. And this is declares the Lord. The Lord is saying this. Mm -hmm. He's going to dwell personally. Many nations, that nations is the Gentiles. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell, then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now the one speaking is the Lord. And the Lord is saying, when all these nations dwell in the midst of the people of Zion and they're becoming the Lord's people, then you will know that the Lord sent the Lord to you.
1: That sounds crazy.
0: So basically the proof in Zechariah 2 that the Lord himself has come is that all these Gentiles are becoming part of the family of God Mm. and God is dwelling in their midst. That's the proof to the Jews of Zerubbabel's day. That will be the proof that God himself has come. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul is basically applying this stuff and saying, guys, they, you guys are in, you are in the father. You are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's powerful language. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say the church of God, the father, the church of Jesus Christ. It do, Paul does use that language in other letters. He says, "The church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father." Yeah, it's very important. It's different in like all of Paul's other letters, basically.
1: Yeah, he communicates a lot with a few little phrases, but he's. I. I mean, this is not necessarily related, but I think he's he's trying to communicate a lot in these sentences and it's so interesting i don't and i don't know how to uh read greek obviously i don't i don't know much about that but the sentences are so complex like there's so many different like clauses and everything and it's just like he's he's with each one he's like giving a deeper layer of their identity i guess
0: yeah yeah, yeah. now what about this last days comment right well to many people in in Zerubbabel's time, in the time of Zechariah, they were expecting this to happen with him. But there's so many aspects of the prophecies of Zechariah that if you're reading this, you're like, hold on a second, this this can't be fulfilled by Zerubbabel or Joshua. Like what what is this stuff? There's like all this weirdness. And definitely if you're living after that time, you're especially during the time that Malachi writes when there's so much corruption, you're like, hold on, I thought God was d- dwelling in our midst and Jerusalem has become the city of truth. What, what's all this? God has turned their blessing into curses. Like what? what is happening now? Clearly this has not been fulfilled. So it's gotta be, there's there's this final day coming when God really does dwell in our midst. Well, well, Joel 2 talks about the last days. In the last days, God's going to do this incredible work. Peter picks that up in the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he quotes it when mm-hmm. people are hearing the apostles speaking in their own language. You know, people from other countries are hearing the apostles proclaim God's word in their language. And this is what Peter says, as he's quoting Joel 2, he says, and it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, on all flesh. It's not just Jews, on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. In those days, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they will prophecy. God, prophesy. Mm-hmm. God's doing it in the last days. In the last days. Okay. Peter says those are now. Now. Yeah. What about Micah 4? Micah four one, And it will be in the last days. Days It'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and many of the peoples will stream into it. That's the nations are going to come to the mountain of the Lord. It's like Zechariah stuff. Many nations will come and say, many Gentiles will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his own vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So all the peoples walk each in the name of his God. As for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And what's interesting is the early Christians like Justin Martyr in 160 says that was fulfilled partially because of Jesus's first coming. It's being fulfilled in us. Because look, us Gentiles are doing that. We are now, we are now like grafted in. To Israel, we're those nations that are come that are coming, following. They have come and are following the true Messiah, mm-hmm. Jesus. And that's by the way in his dialogue with Trifo, the Jew. Mm-hmm. He's saying you guys missed it, so you don't have to though. Yeah. Come repent. Come on, this is the Messiah. Verse two: We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you. In our prayers. In uh, chapter 2, verse 13, we kind of see a correlation to what Paul is giving thanks for. Steph, in your Bible, can you pull up chapter 2, verse 13?
1: Yeah. And read that. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe.
0: Mm. So what are you seeing in that passage that he's giving thanks for specifically?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're just that they they trust the word of God and that they live it out basically. So they put faith in it. Um, they accept that they know that it's not, just Paul's teaching or, um, you know, any of the apostles, but that it is the word directly from God and um, that it's transformational. Yeah. And that's, yeah. When you believe that, that is part of, you know, begins the work in us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what we're going to see as we go through both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is that Paul does pull from Old Testament scriptures, the word of God, but he's also pulling directly from the teachings of Jesus. He's pulling from the teachings of Jesus. And while some of them may have been written down, they're certainly an oral tra- uh, transmission and um, they're widely known. And so he is communicating to them what he has learned by the word of the Lord, perhaps by Jesus himself, perhaps by talking with Peter and James and John, um, as he has done, um, perhaps with talking with other disciples um, of the apostles like Silas. You know, Silas was a leading man in Jerusalem, learning from people like James, right? So Mm -hmm. Paul. Uh, Paul has been gathering up this teaching of the Lord, right? Um, And so he is communicating to the people the word of the Lord. And we're just going to keep on seeing this, how Paul is not teaching a separate gospel from the rest of the apostles. He's not teaching a separate gospel from Jesus. He's teaching the words of Jesus. So we'll just keep that uh, in mind as we continue to move forward throughout the weeks. Then um, he says in verse uh, three, he's they're also constantly bearing in mind the work of faith, which is faith which produces works. So, work produced by faith. That's literally what it means, work of faith. So, faith producing works. Labor of love, So love producing labor and steadfastness of hope. So hope producing endurance or steadfastness in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and father. So faith should produce works. What do you think about that? Or do you see that in scripture? What, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, yeah, I think that makes complete sense. Like when you put your trust in something you that is evidenced through your action. And if you fully trust that God is faithful, then when he calls you to do something, you're gonna act, you're gonna do it. Yeah, That's how we give evidence of our faith.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. One of the ways that faith is... Sometimes tr- uh, translated that pistis is um, faithfulness, mm-hmm. so it's it's sometimes hard to know if a writer is saying faith uh, or faithfulness, like in Romans uh, chapter one, um, and um, so one one of the ways that we could think about this is that. Faith, true faith in Jesus is going to produce acts of faithfulness to Jesus.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, And then love for Jesus will produce labor. Now, that word labor means like... Is it childbirth? Weary some some toil. And that's a great analogy. Go with that.
1: Oh, I was just like—I mean, labor of love. Like when you're when you're in labor and you're giving birth, like you are doing it. Generally speaking, out of love for what is to come, or the hope of what is to come, basically, so that a woman will endure that in order to, um, yeah, to care for this person that they love.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And so Paul has a love for Jesus, and he has a love for the people that he's trying to help bring into the faith, you know, bring into this life and care for and nurture. So like in verse uh, chapter two, verse nine, he also uh, uses that word labor there. And he says, "For you, recall, brethren, you remember our labor and our hardship." How working night and day so as not to be a burden to any one of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So, this guy is like literally working day and night and also preaching, mm. you know, while he's doing this stuff. So, he doesn't want to be a, a financial burden on them. Right. So, he's literally working while also preaching like constantly. And he's only got you know, a few weeks with them, maybe it's, it's probably more than three weeks that he was there. It's maybe a a month to two months or so, but like, it's not a long time, but, but even still, I mean, you think about this guy's like, I only have a certain amount of time with, with these people. I'm going to preach as much as I can, Mm -hmm. but he's also trying to show them how to be good citizens, which is not Mm -hmm. to be lazy you know even though they're in the last days they're Paul is expecting Jesus to possibly come back in his lifetime maybe i mean he's trying to help get the gospel to the ends of the earth you know he's got this kind of thought in mind but he's not being lazy he's trying to show them how to live gosh can you imagine being there with Paul cuz you know the dude is preaching all night places. You remember like what happens later on in Acts when he's yeah. literally preaching all night. Out the window. Don't sit near the windows when yeah. Paul is preaching because you're mm-hmm. going to see people yawning and closing their eyes. You don't want to be around fans. You know, of course they didn't have electricity back then, but you don't want air blowing it in your be, eyes.
1: It could be the, you know, handheld fans. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. You know, so uh, anyway, but this guy is constantly working and it, and it is not like easy labor this is wearisome toil mm-hmm. that love produces and then finally hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father produces steadfastness so hope Peter says in first Peter chapter 1 I think it's verse 13 says to fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about Jesus returning. So Paul is saying here like you have a hope that Jesus really has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So you're really putting your hope in that so he has fulfilled his work, like everything he promised is true. He's there and he's coming back. Mm-hmm. And because you have that hope, you're going to you're going to endure what you have to endure as well because just like he just like he stayed faithful through it and then was exalted, you know, in, in in a way, you will too if you if you endure as well. Like Paul says, if we endure with him, we will reign with him.
1: Is steadfastness, I mean, you use the word endure mm. as a kind of um synonym. Is it it kind of makes me almost think of like a stubbornness? Is that is that a Another kind of way to look at it.
0: I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like yeah. in in the best sense of stubbornness, yeah. kind of like Ezekiel a certainty. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: A certainty that causes you to hang on, no matter what.
1: Yeah, well, that's good.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I don't know. I guess I the, the image that's like that comes to mind is like kind of like a parent child relationship. If you're a good parent who loves your child and you are consistent with your child and they know that they can trust you when you're 10 minutes late, picking them up, they don't freak out because they know that you don't, you don't forget about them. You're coming back for them. So um, yeah, that's kind of what comes to mind. This steadfastness of hope. Like I'm not, I'm not giving up on this. I'm not freaking out about this. I know that my parent loves me and they, you know, they care about me.
0: Yeah, that's good. Now, Paul uses that word labor one more time in uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. So, Stephanie, would you mind reading uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, because it's going to serve as an interesting segue for the next verse.
1: All right. Um, For indeed... When we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass. And as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would have been in vain.
0: Now that's a really interesting passage there. So... Paul's saying, guys, remember, I told you in advance that we were going to suffer and y'all were going to suffer, and it happened. And so, you know, I was waiting to find out word about you because I knew suffering was coming for you, and I was worried that our labor in you, our labor for you guys would be in vain. Now, That word vain there, in vain, kenos, means worthless, amounting to zero. Basically, we went there for nothing. He spent all that time with them. And after leaving, he was worried that Satan... Yeah. He talks about Satan in particular, and now Mm -hmm. he's calling Satan the tempter in this letter. That Satan would have tempted them through either, uh, through many ways, one of them being like threats of persecution or promises of security to defect. And then his work in them would have been in vain. Now, that's really interesting because if we go back to chapter one, And we look at verse four, he's been praising God. He's been praising God because of their steadfastness, because of their hope, because of their faith, because of their work, because of their love. Verse four, knowing brethren, beloved by God, knowing his choice of you. So Paul, that they've been elected. Yeah he knows that they're, they've been chosen by God mm. because of all these things that happened while he was there, that yeah. he, he's witnessed in them. And yet after being away from them for a while and knowing the suffering that was coming their way and knowing the temptations that were coming their way, he was worried that all of that work and that, that true stuff that was going on in them would have been worthless. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I mean it. It almost seems like it contradicts, you know, itself. Like it. It almost seems like he's already he's contradicting himself. Like he's like, I'm so certain of your your standing with God, but then, yeah, some I believe that Satan could come along and pull you away.
0: It's. So. It seems like that. Yeah. On. Um, Unless you think it's possible for elect people to move from a place of believer to unbeliever. Yeah. If you think it's possible for a person to reject their salvation once truly genuinely being saved, because Mm -hmm. Paul genuinely believes that they were chosen by God. He believes genuinely that as a whole, the church genuinely is chosen by God. And he has works that prove that to him. And yet he was genuinely fearful that the church as a whole could have apostatized.
1: So you use the phrase like they rejected God or something along those lines.
0: Not that they did. No, but no, Paul but they is...
1: they could have. Right. But it it kind of in chapter three is talking about the tempter tempting them. Mm. So are you are those are those interchangeable? Is it is there rejection, if, you know, we're saying potentially obviously that's not what happened, but the potential rejection is that the same thing as Satan tempting and you know cuz that kind of almost sounds like somebody taking you out of God's hand.
0: No, no, but I think often I mean there's going to be a temptation there. Yeah right, just like Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness, Mm -hmm. right? It wouldn't be Satan himself pulling Jesus. Let's just hypothetically speaking, okay? Okay. Satan could not ever pull Jesus away from the Father, but he could tempt Jesus Mm. to apostatize. That's literally what he was doing. He was tempting Jesus. Yeah. But Jesus rejected that. He refused to fall into temptation. He resisted the devil. But Paul is saying it's possible, just like in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you know, uh, if we confess him, he will confess us, right? If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If someone is being tempted to deny Christ, there's probably um, some temptation going on. If we look at um, an early second century document that is not Christian, this is not a Christian document. This is from Pliny, who was a governor in the Roman kingdom, Mm -hmm. Roman empire. He's writing to the emperor of the Roman kingdom at the time, Trajan. And Pliny is talking to Trajan about Christians and what to do with these foolish people that are like clinging to this weird superstition. They sing hymns to this man, Christ, as if he were a God. What do we do with these people, especially when they are refusing to renounce this king? And how, how far should we go in torturing them? He's like, I tortured two slave girls who are called deaconesses. And all I find out is that they just cling to this vain superstition, you know? So Mm -hmm. he's like torturing these. Like, do I, should I kill them? How far should I go? Right. So there's temptation there to fall away. And he talks about some of them falling away. Some of them rejecting Christ in that letter to Trajan. This is going on in the second century because of persecution. And that's what Paul is kind of talking there, talking about in chapter 3 in verse 4. He's talking about hardship and persecution, suffering affliction for Jesus coming to pass. So I think that's what he's referring to in, uh, in verse 5 about the tempter. He's tempting them through safety and security. I can make this all go away. Mm. Anyway, so this really shed some light on was Paul a Calvinist? I don't think so, right?
1: Well, (laughs) in your own words, Calvin did not exist yet. So (laughs) definitely not a Calvinist.
0: Yeah, and those beliefs were not in existence either in Christendom until the fifth century. Mm -hmm. Right. Before that, they existed with Stoics. Uh, and they existed with Manichaean Gnostics and some other branches of Gnosticism. But this idea of like an uncondi- unconditional election, um, not with those terms, of course, but these ideas did not exist in Christendom. But we do see Christians talking about how heretics believed them. And um, that may be really difficult for some of our friends to hear, but that's just history. That's just. True. Now we could come away thinking that those anti-Nicene Christians blessed their hearts; they were just simpletons, they were right. idiots, they didn't understand the scriptures. But most of them spoke, uh, with the exception of some like Tertullian uh, in North Africa, um, but a lot of those that were in uh, Asia Minor and uh, the West—not uh, the North Africa region, but above that, above the Mediterranean. Sea, you know, these are people that are growing up fluent in Koine Greek. That is their primary language. So they're reading those early manuscripts like firsthand, and they that's their primary language. They're fluent. Mm-hmm. And they're getting these teachings from the disciples of the apostles in many cases. So we could really go down that rabbit hole, but I think we're probably a little bit too late in the game for that. It's about 42 minutes I'm seeing, maybe 40 minutes. So um, let's let's not do that. Let's stop with verse four. We'll pick up in verse five next time. How about that? Sounds
1: good.
0: Yeah, but let me just close by saying this. Like, what has God chosen? What has God chosen? It says God has chosen them, right? Mm -hmm. If you really dig into the early Christian writings, it reflects this belief that you see throughout Paul. God has chosen faith in Messiah. It's not just Paul that talks about that in Romans and Galatians. It's also John. It's the biblical writers. If you have faith in Messiah, and this is really from the very, very beginning, those people who have chosen to put faith in the proto God uh, pro uh, euangelion, the first gospel, which is found in Genesis three, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. You know, so people like Seth believing in that promise, people like Noah believing in that promise. Then you get to Abraham believing that if you have faith in that, you're going to be good. You're you're going to be saved. God has chosen faith even back then. And then God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12. And he talks about, I'm going to bless you, make you the father of many nations. And he comes to him, the word of the Lord takes Abraham by the hand outside in Genesis 15, shows him the stars of the sky see them, count them if you can. I'm going to make your children like those stars in the sky. And then he makes a covenant with them in Genesis 17. And then he uh, eventually has a son and it's uh, with Sarah, you know, and they have Isaac. And then Genesis 22, um, go take your son up on that mountain that I will show you and sacrifice your son. No, don't do it. Just testing you. Now I know the angel of the Lord says that you have not withheld your son from me, right? Your, your only son that you love, but on the mountain of the lord it will be provided right god will provide if you're believing in god providing if you through abraham's descendant like isaac believed like jacob believed and then it came through judah and it continued to go through and then it came through david And his seed. If you're believing in that promised seed through Abraham, you're going to be saved. And guess what? That promised seed came. Even though the world was made by by him, the world did not recognize him, right? John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own. The word of God, the word of the Lord from Genesis 15 that took Abraham by the hand, the word of the Lord came into the world like Zechariah 2 talked about. I'm going to come in and dwell among my people. Well, he did. He came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed in his name, those who are born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. God has chosen faith in Jesus. That's what God has elected. And it's by God's grace that he gives you the right to become children of God. Just because God has chosen faith doesn't mean you earn it. You, God is not required to make you his child, just because you have faith, it's his gift. He has chosen to. He is gracefully chosen to give you the right to become his child. It's by grace, through faith, that we are saved. Just trust me, you'll see. To believe, he came to me and told me my seed would be the way that he'd bring hope to the world. Then he took me outside and said, Look at the sky, just like the stars the songs will fill up the earth. Just trust me, you'll see. Oh, 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 oh. Hold on to pulling. So go to that mountain. What should be there? You and your son, was a miracle child, give him back to his maker son don't be scared our god who loves the world is gonna provide just trust me you'll see The bully. You are the son of the promise of God and on his word we stand in Love doesn't quit at a twist and the fly if you be across cross this new red shine.